Hey guys, Pastor Jürgen here. We're so excited you're tuning into one of our amazing messages. What you're about to hear is going to be fresh, it's going to be real, and it's going to be powerful. It's going to help you to grow stronger in your walk with God. It's going to put faith on the inside of you. It's going to cause you to be able to walk in greater dimensions of blessing and enlargement so that you can be a blessing to other people. Well, lean in, enjoy the word. God bless you. Today, the thing that... Um the thing that I wanted to bring, the thing that God put on my heart is the story of Jacob. It's funny because it's something I've, I've preached on before. Um, it's something I've preached on before. And every time I bring it up, my first reaction is, no, I want to do something new. Like I, I've talked about Jacob before. God, I want you. And without fail, every single time I visit this story, I highly encourage you guys. It lasts about seven chapters. I highly encourage you guys to dive into the life of Jacob. It is so prolific. It, it speaks, his story speaks to the heart of what it means to be born into a world that is wounded and imprisoned by sin and fear, to take that on as your identity, and then to be led to a place where you realize the only way out is God's love. Um, I think, man, what a better place to reflect on that message than in a bar. If you don't know anything about, Jesus, uh, about Jacob, uh, Jacob is one of the, the patrons of Israel. He's, you've probably heard the term Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're the fathers of the nation of Israel. So God came to Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, and said, I'm going to birth a nation through you, and this nation's going to have a very specific job on earth. This nation is not just my favorite nation. This is not about favoritism. This nation is going to have the job of being a community of people on earth, a physical flesh and blood community that the rest of the world can look at and see that's what God is like. That's Israel's mission. That's Israel's commission. That's why they were born. And Jacob is the third in the line of those patrons, the fathers of this nation. And it's really easy. It's really easy to read his story with, and kind of cover up how brutally messy his story is because we know the end of the story. We know that he becomes Jacob who gives birth to the 12 tribes of Israel. We know that he's an incredible guy and a, and a, and a story of victory and a story of um, God's power on earth. But he was born Jacob, which in, uh, in Hebrew, Jacob means heel grabber. So if you, if you start, we're not going to start there today, but if you start at the very beginning of his story when he's in his mom's womb, she's pregnant, Rebecca's pregnant, she's talking a lot to her, her friends. She's talking about how it feels like these twins, Jacob has a twin, if you didn't know, it feels like they're fighting. It feels like they're wrestling all the time. It feels like there's tension here. And so when Jacob is born... Esau comes out first, and Jacob is grabbing onto his heel. And so she nicknames him. Or I'm sorry, she doesn't nickname him. She gives him a nickname as a surname of Jacob, which means heel grabber. Now, if, if, if you're not versed in ancient Hebrew culture like I am not, if, if we were like having a conversation at a coffee shop and, and we were talking about somebody we both know, and I'm like, yeah, he's a bit of a heel grabber, would that strike you as like a positive, I'm building this person up? No, it wasn't meant to. Heel grabber in, so like ancient Middle East, this is about 1800 years before Jesus is born. In ancient Middle Eastern culture is an idiom. It's a, it's a placeholder to call somebody a supplanter, a, a, a schemer, a grasper at other people's territory. 
which if you just stop and you wonder, why on earth would a mom name her son an idiom that refers to him being manipulative and schemy? It's a little bit easier to understand if you understand where Rebecca's coming from. So Rebecca, and we, and we learn a lot about Rebecca's family of origin later in Jacob's life because Jacob goes to work for her dad, his grandfather Laban. And Laban is 10 times the schemer, manipulator, trickster. He is a shady, shady businessman, even to his own family. And so that, it's easy for me to step back a little bit and say, okay, so Rebecca grew up under the emotional covering of a man who was not honest. That doesn't mean he was evil. That doesn't mean like he, he wanted to wreck other people's lives, but he lived in fear and scarcity. And out of that, treated his friends, his family members, his business associates dishonestly. And so that's her normal. And so now her son is born. And then her second twin son is born. And she sees one grasping onto the heel of other. And somebody could easily just look at that and say, man, look at the strength Right? Somebody could look at the, the infant, the, the, the being born, holding onto the heel of his brother and be like, wow, we got a scrapper, man. We got a, a titan. We got a gritty little strong person here. But she looks at it through her lens, right? She looks at it through the lens of family eats family. She looks at it through the lens of dishonesty as the norm in our society. And she's a I think we got a heel grabber here. And she puts that mantle on him before he even knows what the word means. He internalizes it. So there's a, um, there's a first snapshot in his life, which is probably one of the more famous scenes in his life that I want to just read through real quick. And we'll get like a visceral picture of what it looks like for a curse to get passed down from one generation to another. So in 27, verse 5 says, Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau, whose son? His son. Isaac's son. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son, whose son? Her son, Jacob, look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Okay, full stop. This is like a pause moment. This is a huge moment for a family. This is a sacred family ritual. This is what we call, referring to the ancient world, this is what we call primogeniture, which is the practice of the mantle, the 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 weight of responsibility, but the power of protection also. So like you have to do what the head, the father of the family says, right? The, the power is on his shoulders, so you have to obey him. Also the mantle of protection. It's his responsibility to keep everybody safe. This is the mantle that Isaac has been carrying all his life. Isaac is probably um, somewhere around 140 years old right now. So he's having this sacred conversation. He's talking to his son Esau about the passing of the mantle. What they call in this, they call it the blessing. He's doing it in secret. He's doing it without even talking to his wife. This is something that would have been done. They would bring the whole family, not just the immediate family of origin, the entire extended family together, and it would be a huge ritual. It would be a, a public thing where the mantle, that blessing goes from father to first born son. That's the practice of primogeniture. And we have this, we have this challenging situation where we have two 
firstborn sons. We have twins. And it's easy for us to imagine, well, oh, oh, it's because Esau came out first. That's not what we're, walking, we're looking at here. What we're looking at is if, if you read a little bit beyond where we're going to restrict ourselves today, just because uh, I try and cover way too much territory every time I speak, is that we hear again and again that Esau is Isaac's favorite, that Isaac has a favorite. It doesn't, it doesn't mean he doesn't love Jacob. It's just, but Esau is the man of the field. He's the hunter. He's strong. He camps. He smells like the earth. He brings home delicious game. He's a man's man. And Esau, or Isaac loves that about him. It's also interesting to learn that Isaac grew up with a big brother who despised him. Isaac was the recipient of his father's blessing as a second-born son, because his older brother who hated him was the bastard child of Sarah, his mom's nurse or slave. Are we starting to see this, like, this generational anxiety that exists here in this family? So there's this moment where Rebecca goes to Jacob and she says, sweetie, I was eavesdropping because your father and I are uh, clearly not open in our communication. And I heard your dad is about to give your brother the blessing, the mantle, the primogeniture. He's going to pass on his blessing. And you're my favorite. And I want you to have it. And Jacob's response is like, now listen, my son, listen carefully. Do exactly what I tell you. Go out to the flock. Bring me two choice goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give his blessing before he dies. May give you his blessing before he dies. And Jacob protests. He says to Rebecca, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. Which is really interesting that Jacob, the heel grabber, the supplanter, the deceiver, who's carried that identity and that name his whole life, actually is the one saying, this doesn't sound like a good idea. Somebody else is the one pressuring him. Somebody else's fear from their childhood, from their family, is now sitting on their shoulders and saying, son, if you don't, if, you, if you're honest about this, if you trust God, if you trust your dad, you're gonna get left out. I don't want that to happen. You've gotta play the game. You've gotta be deceptive. You've gotta live out this banner that we put on you when you were born. Does that make sense? The thing that we have to, uh, I think that we have to reflect on when we, when we read a passage like this, is it's really easy to judge both of these characters. It's really easy to judge, like, wow, who would like go to such extremes lengths? If you don't know the story, he like goes out and he puts on the skin of a goat so that he'll feel hairy. And then he goes to his dad and his dad's like, something don't smell right. And he touches him. He's like, okay. And he gives him his blessing. to such extreme lengths to deceive your father so that he would give you the blessing he didn't even mean for you, what kind of hunger does Jacob have to live with? What kind of scarcity and emptiness is he sitting with feeling like, man, probably watching his dad love, spend time with, teach him how to, teach his brother how to use a bow, teach his brother how to camp, love the fact that his brother brings home these games, celebrate his brother's accomplishments, and then he is a mama's boy. They, this this text, even this short little chapter, refers to Esau as his son and Jacob as her son. 
and so hungry, he's so hungry for a sense of his dad's blessing, he's playing into this game that's being taught and modeled for him. The tricky part is to remember that we are both Jacob and Rebecca. We are both the recipient of labels and the giver of labels all the time. We as a people, as a wounded people who carry fear and you will carry trace amounts of fear until you are die because the Bible says that the process of sanctification does not end until you're in heaven. That doesn't mean that we make leaps and bounds and we live not out of fear anymore, but that we are in a process of constantly uprooting trace more covert and invisible and tiny little traces of fear in our life, that we love labels. We love them because labels allow us to take something scary and, and, and uncertain and complex and nuanced in another person and reduce it down to a villain, reduce it down to oh, somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about, reduce it down to something that I can dismiss. I remember when I was, um, when I was first married, uh, actually before I even got married, my wife and I lived very far apart. She lived up in Northern California. I was living down in San Diego and we did a lot of road trips together. So I've actually known my wife since I was a sophomore in high school. We did not get married then, but we dated, we broke up. It was a full blown like category five high school drama. It was all the way there. Kept my eye on her from a distance for about three, four years until uh, two years after high school. I drove up to Northern California where she was um, living, asked her out to coffee, and I told her very assertively, I would like to be your boyfriend. It's not the way everybody should go, but it's the way I went. I just went straight, I just went straight for the money. And so we go from being friends to being a um, committed monogamous relationship in about 10 minutes. And then the next week, we're driving, we're making the road trip from her house to my house. Um, she's going to spend some time with some friends in San Diego. And we're on this road trip and we're talking about our life together. Why wouldn't you? I was 20. So we've been dating for about 48 hours and we started <laughs> talking about our vision. Well, on this car ride, we're talking about things that feel important to us. Like, what, what, what would we like our life to be about? And both of us, for some reason, we didn't know this about it. Both of us had this dream of, like, supporting marriages. We both had this dream of, like, building up people's marriages. My wife's dream was rooted in reality. My dream, I remember at one point, we're riding in the car, and I tell I've got this, I've got this just burden on my heart. And you love it when you dress up ridiculous things with spiritual language. I've got this burden on my heart. I feel like God's telling me that I'm never going to have a fight with my wife. I've got this vision. I'm going to be such an amazing self-regulated husband. I'm never going to get triggered or upset. I'm never going to have a fight with my wife. And I remember we're in the car. She's sitting to my right and I look over and she's like, you know how you look at like, like a little kid when they do something dumb? That was, it was this really like, aw, that's really cute. But she, she just like smiled at me. She kind of cocked her head to the side. She said, I, I, I think you're probably going to fight with your wife. And that was pretty devastating to me. But I committed. I stayed like, no, sweetie. If you hook your caboose to this train, girl, <laughs> we're never going to have a fight. I was pretty committed. What I didn't understand at the time was that that absurd vision which isn't even a good thing to, you shouldn't even shoot for no conflict in your marriage. That's like, as a marital therapist, now I understand that's not even a good thing. Conflict, fighting, right? Like, 
like treating each other um, with aggression is, is, should have no place in your marriage. But conflict is a really healthy thing. It just means you're bumping into the boundaries of what you know about each other. Conflict is an invitation to go deeper and to integrate and be intimacy. But I was still carrying an outdated narrative about conflict. I was carrying a narrative from my childhood. See, my dad had a temper and my mom's dad had a temper. And my parents separated when I was about six years old. And I saw very, very little of my dad after that. And I remember being really, really young. I don't know how young. And I have an amazing mom. She is my superhero. She raised three kids all by herself. I remember having these really, really young, these memories of my where I would get upset and I would slam a door. Or I would throw something. I'd get upset. I'm probably seven, eight years old. She said, Brian, Brian, I love you. You are, she would say something, she would affirm me in some way. And she said, Brian, you are an angry little boy. You've got to do something about that anger. And instead of helping me understand that Anger is a really normal part of the human emotional spectrum. Everybody feels anger. Our point is not to get rid of anger. Our point is to understand, integrate, and respond healthy in anger. My mom had a fear of male anger because male anger in her story was dangerous. Male anger led to violence in her story. So she sees her little eight-year-old boy getting angry, and what is she gonna, she's going to see it through that lens. And what we see right here, Rebecca sees her son getting left behind, and she sees it through her lens. And so she tells him, you got to go hustle. You got you to manipulate to get there. Have you guys ever had a label been put, like, put on you? Has anybody ever like, referred to an addiction that you're struggling with? Maybe finances, debt, anger. You're too much. You're too sensitive. Have you ever been given a label? Because I think we've all been given labels. And the problem is that if that label coincides, if it resonates with a wound that we're already carrying, our brain is basically defenseless. It basically has no defense to say, no, what gets activated is the trauma, and we feel the pain of that label. We we're either going to push it away by getting angry, or we're going to identify with it and retreat. But because of these uh, really, really specialized neurons in our brain, they're called mirror neurons. Everybody say mirror neurons. Mirror neurons are spread out all over the prefrontal cortex and they, correct, they connect directly to your limbic stem. And that's not important to understand at all. I just want you guys to know how much I know. What that means is, is that there's this system of neurons that have a very, very specialized job. They have one job. They don't care about math. They don't care about finances. They don't care about job or parenting. All they care about is are the relationships that you consider your source of belonging, those relationships in your life, are they in sync with you? And so those mirror neurons, they're referred to that as because they look to other people's affects, specifically their emotion, their facial expression, their tone of voice, their body language, all that nonverbal data. They look, your, those parts of your brain are looking and scanning all the time, are we okay? Do we belong? Are we connected? And so when people put labels on our life, we have two options. Our brain, effectively, which is not in, uh, your brain is not intelligent. Your brain is an organ. Your mind is incredibly intelligent. Our brain is a, is a machine that operates by very, very specific neurosynaptic rules, right? And so the brain organ has two options. It either rejects the, the label and the connection, or it integrates the label and preserves the connection. 
And we are never more vulnerable than when we're little. We're very, very vulnerable when we're little. So when our caregivers are carrying unintegrated, unhealed wounds, those wounds almost always get down. The Bible refers to these, this transmission as generational curses. And a mom's pain gets passed down from her fear, gets passed down from mom to child, from dad to child, literally through our nervous system. I don't ever have to say a word. There's this really incredible um, Harvard study that was done like 60 years ago. It was done in 1964. A guy, a guy named Robert Rosenthal. Dr. Rosenthal really wanted to know how much our expectations of other people impacted the outcomes in their life. So he took a super standard IQ test. At the time, it was called the Flanagan's General Assessment of Intelligence. It was 1964, don't judge it. And he took this super standard IQ test and he went to schools, middle schools, like sixth, seventh grade. And he gave it to the teachers and he said, okay, I want you to this. This is a very special new test. We developed new technology. We have the ability to predict increases in intelligence. So what I want you to do is administer this to your students and we'll tell you who's going to have an uptick. So they went through this process and Rosenthal randomly selected a couple of students from each class at total random and then stood back and watched the teachers, not the students. And for two years, he watched how these teachers started to respond to these students differently. Once the, student was, once the teacher was told, hey, this student, little Billy, in the next two years, he's going to have a massive uptick in intelligence. Be watching for that. They lean in all of a sudden. They, they respond with expectation. They encourage them differently. They challenge them differently. They tune into what are they thinking? What is, their, what is the obstacle here? What, do they need help? Do they need to be pushed? They respond differently because they see them differently. Two years later across the board, without exception, every single student had a dramatic uptick in their school performance. Why? Because their teachers saw them through the lens of potential. <laughs> saw them through the lens of potential. We live into our labels. We live into our labels. So if we jump to this next, this next little episode in Jacob's life, Jacob is now fleeing from his brother. I'm going to go through this a little bit quickly. And the Lord said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham and Isaac, and, um, and the God of J Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done this. And Jacob is running from his life. This is just weeks after he deceived his father. He's fearful that Esau, his much stronger, more, you know, um, muscle building, hairy brother, thank you, is going to destroy him. Esau is angry. And then he goes into the desert and says, and hears from God. This is the first one-on-one -on -one encounter that he has with God. And God says to him, says, hey, I know that, I know that there's stuff going on, but I'm going to do something in your life. I'm going to take you somewhere new. And Jacob takes that and he leaves the deception behind. He takes this, this download, this new mission, this new sense of like, okay, God is calling me to something. And he goes on, he spends the next 20 years of his life trying to be a really honest man. And he does. And God blesses his work for 20 years. He's working for his grandfather, Laban, and he's just multiplying. And the beauty of that is Laban is like super dishonest. So he's, Laban is like dishing out 10 times what, what Jacob used to do in his scheming days. And he's just staying honest. 
And at one point he's gotten so much, he wants to move on. He leaves without saying goodbye to Laban because he knows that Laban doesn't want him to leave. He is the source of Laban's wealth now. And Laban comes after him. And so now Esau, 20 years later, is running for his life again. And he gets word that Esau is in front of him. Laban is behind him and he's losing hope. He's still, so he switched his strategy as somebody carrying a traumatic label, somebody carrying a false identity. He went from scheming to performing, but he has not yet reached sonship. He actually doesn't believe that God sees him, that he can trust God for his destiny. And he comes to the middle of the the middle of the desert. He just happens to be in the exact same place he was 20 years earlier. He sends his family away because he's so scared that Esau is going to catch up to him and murder his family. And so he's all by himself and God shows up. In 32, and it says, 24, so Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could no longer, that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wretched. And as he wrestled with the man, then the man said, let me go, for it is day, daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? So Jacob says to this stranger, this mysterious presence that shows up in the desert all by himself in his wilderness. And he says, I've got nothing left. I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And, the, and this mysterious person says, okay, you want my blessing? Tell me what your name is. What are you still carrying? How do you define who you are? Jacob, he answered, I'm, I'm the heel grabber. I'm the supplanter. I'm the guy that schemes. Then the man said to him, your name will no longer be Jacob. Remember about 20 years earlier when, when God gave him that vision? He says, I'm going to. I'm going to bring you to a land. I'm going to multiply your descendants. All of these things are going to happen in the future. Well, Jacob's been living on that promise, living on that hope, trying to, trying to earn it, trying to perform. And this time the man uses a different tense. God's voice comes in a different, it's not future tense. He says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with man, and have overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him. So, so if, you, if you take nothing out of this room, take this scene, because it borders on absurd, doesn't it? A man, a flesh and blood man like you and me, is in the desert, in the wilderness, by himself, wrestling with the God of creation, wrestling with Yahweh, Yahweh isn't challenged by our physical strength. I remember several weeks ago, I was, I was, I was working through this and I was kind of getting frustrated. I don't get it. I don't understand what, what like what, this is a weird scene. Why is, um, why does it say that a man was struggling and wrestling with God? Why would it characterize it that way? And my wife reminded me, she says, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like the way you wrestle with the girls. I remember stopping thinking, Man, when those girls, when my girls were little, they're a little bigger now. They could probably take me if I tried to do this today. But when they were really little, four or five years old, we would wrestle and we'd go at it, right? Like they would like run and jump and body slam against me. And I'd make all the noises. Anybody ever wrestled with a three-year-old? 
and you pick them up and you really gently you set them down. <laughs> and they're fighting for their lives. They want to see if they can take you down. They're testing their strength against daddy. Am I strong? Can I hang? Can I handle? Can I contend with the source of strength in my life with daddy? And I'm just trying not to hurt them, right? Like I'm just trying to prevent my body weight from breaking their bones. I don't want to have that conversation at the ER. And as soon as she said that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's what this is. Jacob didn't have daddy. Jacob had a dad. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to go so far as I say that Isaac didn't love Jacob. I don't think that's what we're looking at. I think we're looking at really wounded people. But he didn't have a dad who was so set free in his identity that he was able to say, hey, you just the way God made you with your smooth skin and your great ability to cook or whatever it is that you do, you're a man. You are good enough. I love you. I'm grateful for you. I am proud of you. He never had that. And God takes him out into the wilderness and they wrestle all night. And it says day is breaking and the man is trying to leave, right? The man is trying to get away. Jacob can't get up. Jacob's hip, one of the strongest ligaments in the human body, Jacob's hip is out of socket. So he is crippled in agony on the ground and Jacob just refuses to let go. And the guy's like, hey, let me go. The day is breaking. I need to leave. Where's Jacob holding on if the guy's trying to leave? I know that it doesn't say it explicitly in the text, but the imagery feels so undemiled that what does God do? God's putting him in that position where he's got to get in touch with his own pain. He's got to get in touch with his own label. And he looks down in that moment, he looks down at him. He says, what is your name? And he makes Jacob say his shame. He says, I'm the heel grabber. And he says, nope, you're the guy that wrestled with daddy. You're the guy that overcame. You're the guy that contended. You're the guy that fought. The thing that your mom saw in you, it was real strength. She just didn't know how to name it because she had her own wounds and her own trauma. And what I know God wants us to hear when we read a story like this is to know that we all carry labels. The first thing we have to do is we have to be willing to release ourselves from the restriction of somebody else's narrative somebody else's fear and somebody else's trauma. I had to say, you know what? My mom's wounds don't define who I am. I am not an angry man. I'm a man who gets angry and that's a normal, healthy thing to do. And as soon as I did that, explosions, they used to, I was, I was a little boy. I was known as the volcano. That's a real thing. As soon as I stopped trying to disown my anger, and I believe that, man, maybe that's, maybe that's a, a wrong conceptualization of the problem. Maybe the problem that is that I believe I'm broken. Maybe the problem is that I'm trying to be something other than God gave, made me to be. And you integrate it. And I say, I'm not going to live by somebody else's restrictions. And then there's a step two. You got to say, I'm not going to hold them responsible for my ceiling either. You know, just because they were wounded and they put that label on you, it doesn't mean that they're responsible for where you go. And we've got to forgive them, set them free from the responsibility of their trauma, their wounds, their fears, and their restrictions, and say, man, I pray for you. I hope God blesses you. I hope he sets you free. But I can't, A, I can't participate in that anymore. I'm not Jacob. That's not my identity. And also, I want you to know that I don't blame you for my life. I don't think that your ceiling now limits my destiny. Does that make sense? Are we tracking? 
I want to just pray for you guys. And I want to encourage you. This is a moment. This is a moment that insight isn't enough. One of the, one of the trickiest and most kind of dangerous things in therapy, therapists love insight moments. Those moments where you're exploring with somebody and you, you ask a question or you make some sort of like conjecture or reflection and they go, wow, that's so insightful. It is like crack cocaine to a therapist. Why? Because A, it makes us feel great about ourselves, and B, there's a very strong false sense of change in insight. People's lives don't get changed because they understand differently. People's lives get changed because they experience differently. So I can know that God is real. I can know that he loves and that he loves me until I go to the altar and I look in the eyes of a flesh and blood person and I see that God's love coming through their eyes. Until my mirror neurons have that experience, it's just hypothetical. And so what I want to say is if labels are coming to the surface and pain is coming to the surface, Don't try and do this by yourself. Don't do that strategy. It will never get you free. You cannot perform yourself out of shame. You can only experience yourself out of it. God, I pray for every heart in this room. And I thank you. I thank you that you are calling us into freedom, that your banner over every single person in this room is that of a conqueror set free, empowered, and set loose in the world to be a vessel of your love and nothing else. Lord, I pray for courage. I pray for clarity. I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to turn to another person and say, I've been carrying a label that is not mine. God, I thank you that it is only in your love. It is only in the power of your Holy Spirit that we experience change and freedom. And I pray that that spirit and that power over the heart of every person in this room. It is in your son's name we pray. Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already, and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.